0: That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Burlap and Barrel, a public benefit corporation working directly with smallholder spice farmers around the world to source unique, beautiful spices for professional chefs and home cooks. This week on a special bonus episode of Meetin and 3... We find out how Brexit could be changing the way that Brits eat.
1: If you're not getting your food from the European Union, where Britain gets 30% directly, well, where are you going to get it from? As I put very succinctly,
2: buh-bye fresh peaches from Italy, hello tinned peaches from Florida. bye bye fresh oranges, hello tinned oranges. bye bye free-range beef, hello
1: hormone-injected beef. Tune in to hear about the UK's struggle to stabilize its food system
0: on Meat and 3, HRN's Weekly Food News Roundup, available wherever you listen to podcasts.
1: Hello, this is Dana Cowan, and you're listening to Speaking Broadly on Heritage Radio Network. Each week, I interview a woman whose work inspires me at the intersection of food and culture. Today, we're going to take a look at food as fashion. To explore the topic, my guest today is Rhonda Gerlich. Rhonda is the Dean of the School of Art and Design, History, and Theory at Parsons, the New School, which I said in one breath, that is such... It's a long title. (laughs) It really is. And she's also the professor of fashion studies. Ron is a Guggenheim fellow and a fellow of the New York Institute for the Humanities. The thing that I love the most, because I haven't taken classes with you, but I've read your incredible pieces on New York magazines, The Cut, Reading the Signs. So welcome to Speaking Broadly. Uh, I'm delighted to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Over the last 20 years, food has become incredibly Fashionable, and that's had tremendous effect on the way that we live our lives, what we think about every day. When you think about the intersection of food and fashion, like what does that mean to you?
2: You know, I've spent a lot of time going back and forth to New York City, which is my hometown, and I was raised here, but I have worked and lived in different states, and I've always yearned to come back to New York and spent long periods of every year when I wasn't living here. Visiting, And so I've seen that development, especially in New York's food scene, from a pleasure, a social thing, a biological necessity, into a fashion statement. And I think living outside of the city for as many years as I did, I experienced it as something somewhat separate from me in a way I wouldn't have if I'd lived here. And for a long time, I really yearned for that connection because in addition to its sensory pleasures and the deliciousness of food and its sustenance it became a kind of badge of identity it became a quick way to identify oneself as in the know or not in the know and as a somewhat exiled new yorker i was very mindful that i was losing my knowledge of the in food scene the in restaurants the cuisines and not even just cuisine but very specific things like is foam in or out, is air in or out <laughs> and what vegetable is the it vegetable of the day.
1: So when you were eating in Nebraska, which mm-hmm. is where you spent a lot of time. Yes I did. What were you eating? What were the signifiers of being in? I mean we always said in this snotty New York world, like oh, the middle of the country is three to five years behind.
2: Well, if we're going to talk in terms of behind and ahead, I, I dare say it's more than that. But that's only in what how fast trends move and become enracinated. At the same time, it's a completely different world. So they don't think of themselves in different parts of the country as behind. They think of themselves as having their own culture, which they do. But I can tell you that Nebraska, obviously, most Americans know it as the capital of steak. All right, but I, I have a tiny anecdote that you might appreciate involving steak in Nebraska. When I moved out there for work, with my husband, we had jobs out there that were wonderful. My husband's from Argentina, and he is passionate and devoted to fine steak. So he figured, outside of Argentina, this must be the capital of steak, and it is in a way. But the actual steak we were getting in restaurants and from stores did not seem elevated. And then we were, we found ourselves in Spain on a research trip I was taking, and we were in this little medieval town where I was visiting a museum to interview the director and look at some artworks. And this charming man said, um, it was called El Vendrel, and it's outside of uh, Barcelona. And he said, I'm going to take you, before we do any work, to my favorite restaurant for lunch. And it wasn't a restaurant, it was a butcher shop in a deli. And we sat down, and he told the owner, these are my friend's These are my special friends. They're visiting from Nebraska, which was a strange and exotic (laughs) place to be from in this little medieval village. And the owner of this hole-in-the-wall little shop went nuts, went racing back into the kitchen and came back out with lunch for us, which was the most luscious, mind-blowing steak I have ever tasted. And he said to us, this is Nebraska beef which I import specially. And every year I go to some international conference for fine purveyors of steak. And he buys the most exquisite, like Wagyu quality. But it was from our backyard in Omaha, which we had never tasted nothing remotely like it. And then we learned from this steak expert in a medieval village in Spain, that apparently the very best steak in Nebraska
1: Is exported. Is exported. I would have never guessed that. (laughs) (laughs) But I'm very glad to know that now. But it's kind of a story of globalization, right, and regional food. When I think of fashion and the changes in fashion, I think of the way that it's tied to food in the way that we constrict what we eat Mm -hmm. or enjoy what we eat. Because, I mean, thinking about J-Lo and her bodysuit, you actually don't want to eat a lot.
2: Aren't we all thinking about that? I just had a whole <laughs> seminar about that last night. Yes.
1: What what was your conclusion on JLo and her bodysuit?
2: Well, honestly, I loved it. I loved J.Lo. I love Shakira, I loved what they were wearing. But when you think about food and you think about women in, you know, leather bodysuits in front of billions of people. Of course we remember that you can't really have both. You can't be a great indulger of rich foods. And have a normatively beautiful female body unless you're a genetic aberration or 20 years old maybe. (laughs) And the connection between the fashions and the trends of food and the trends of clothing I think can't be discussed without discussing it. Food is, for so many women, unfortunately seen as the enemy or the obstacle to wearing couture or or the latest fashions. Because for women, they're still so body revealing, right?
1: And so do you take issue with the food side? Do you feel Mm -hmm. like fashion should change so that we're not in skinny jeans and worried about our stomach?
2: Well, some of my favorite fashion designers are actually designers who think about the physical pleasure of fashion for the woman herself as opposed to for those looking at her body. And uh, the most important person who comes to mind there is Ray Kawakubo from Comme des Garçons, who created a look long ago and still perpetuates a look that's about what the woman's body feels like underneath the garments and the haptic, as they call it, pleasure of fabric moving on the body and how you can maybe even reform a body in silhouette by adding strange protuberances or strange new cuts and flow so that the body is an artwork, not just a silhouette that's kind of constricted in a very traditional way. And I love fashion like that. Um, Do
1: you think that there's a relationship between that and her idea about sensual pleasure, right? So you have the sensuality of the fabric on the body, but equally, you can eat as much as you want <laughs> because you, you're, not, you know, you're not worried that lunch is going to show um, in your dinner outfit.
2: I agree that thinking about Food is something that will soon be visible on your body. It's almost entirely a female anxiety. And I hate, I do hate that. Obviously, we're all in favor of health and fitness, that's different. But having your clothes police you and your gustatory pleasures is a peculiar thing. You know Coco Chanel is famous for being one of the first designers to create clothes without corsets and she wasn't the first but she popularized it. Poiret was the Poiret is actually the first. designer who dispensed with corsets first. But in any case, Chanel made famous this loose, sort of slim, free-floating silhouette without corsets beneath. But as many people have noticed, including myself, that is not a liberating thing for many women because what she was creating initially were jersey tube dresses, much like slinky dresses we have now, under which it was impossible to wear a corset because you would see all the flesh sort of billowing (laughs) over the corset, (laughs) under the corset. You needed to be just naturally slim. And what that's been called is internalizing the corset. So rather than a liberation, you should think about it as a new kind of constraint because women became very interested in exercise and creating a human corset of musculature that would hold the body together in a slim fit way that's closer to what used to be a male ideal. Now we think of that as normal. It wasn't always women were, as you know, far more voluminous and curvy and fleshy um, when fashion's permitted and it's a cycle.
1: You, you study luxury yes. in fashion, and there's so much luxury in the world of food. And Actually, in the world of food, luxury has transitioned from being about truffles, foie gras, things like that, to the luxury being something that was farmed by people who are paid well mm-hmm. <laughs> in ground that's taken care of and obviously grown with the season. So when you think about luxury in fashion and luxury and food? Where do those two things connect?
2: That's an excellent question. What you're talking about is the transition, which is mostly something I think we can applaud between luxury as excess and exclusivity to luxury as awareness and sustainability and love of earth. I think there is a connection to be seen, although I still think there's an element of privilege and exclusivity. Because of course, the most organic and sustainably grown and local food is often unavailable to people of more modest means. Not in every case, but but still, even knowing about these things, having the time to shop and source the particular ingredients whose provenance you approve of is itself a luxury. Because time is a luxury, and time to inform oneself and worry about the origin of your dinner is a luxury, And the vast majority of the world's people are just happy they can put something on the table after an exhausting day of work. And so while I I hope that this kind of thinking about food becomes absolutely universal, I recognize that it's a kind of privilege in the same way that knowing your fashion's background and sustainable fashion is, is crucial. Not everybody knows that the fashion industry is the single most polluting industry on the globe, even ahead of the fossil fuel industry. The quantity of waste, destruction, and toxic output of the fashion industry surpasses everything. And it's like a terrible truth behind the beautiful images. At the same time, cheap fashion, fast fashion, the fashion that looks like the expensive luxury fashion, is very desirable. What the French call tapada it hits your eye and people want it because they want to be part of the big conversation. Like I longed to be part of the restaurant scene when I was living away from it. And knowing about it, taking time, being willing or having the means to spend more for fashion that is more sustainably produced also is a luxury. So what we call luxury sometimes has more to do with the leisure of the people obtaining it than it does the lavishness of the object or the product, whether it's truffles versus a kale smoothie, or a couture piece that costs $50,000, or the Zara knockoff that costs 10, but actually has a very disturbing history behind it that we, we need to avoid. The world is so divided that I feel like I study luxury, and I personally, you know, I'm enticed by it like everybody else, but I, I try not to judge those who can't critique and constrain themselves from cheap luxuries because they're a pleasure that's available when many other pleasures are not.
1: So what would be a a cheap luxury that's sort of non-destructive?
2: Farmer's market cheeses, hand-woven things from your neighborhood craft store. I think
1: the more local, the better. The book that you're working on, Pink Politics, is about the elements of women's everyday lives. And food is such a big part of that. Tell me about what's come up in your research in terms of food and pink politics and women's everyday lives. Pink politics is about
2: what I consider the sort of natural, critical genius of women's daily lives that is developed through the curation of the domestic and the bodily that women are just tasked with globally, constantly, in addition to everything else they do. So, this is speaking very generally, but women are largely responsible for creating the look of homes, the taste of homes, the daily maintenance of the home, and also the physical look of themselves and their children often. And this is an exercise, as you well know, of selection, of taste, of discernment, of judgment, of practice, of critique. It it develops a muscle of critical thinking that's very powerful. And yet it is not acknowledged in the general realm of political thought. It is not a metaphor that we use. For example, when we watch politics and debates, as we have lately more than ever, we hear sports metaphors. We hear about the Hail Mary pass. We hear about tackling your opponent. We hear about wrestling matches. It's quite normal, even for women in politics, to use the metaphors that come from more masculine daily pursuits than traditionally female pursuits. And I'm using sort of normative gender categories with apologies because I understand that it's a spectrum. But traditionally female-coded practices of food, of self-embellishment, of exercise, all of these things bring to women a kind of natural critical acumen that is powerful. Women know a lot and it's transferable. To the political realm, even when they themselves are not political.
1: I'm fascinated by the notion that it's undervalued, this critical judgment. It's never sort of reflected, but in what way could it or should it be? Or is that just bringing more sort of gendered politics into politics? And you say, you know, instead of a Hail Mary pass, you're like, it's as good in the kitchen as he is in politics. I mean, like, well, what is, how does that work?
2: The way it works is by acknowledging the unacknowledged. And it's not just swapping one metaphor for another. You know, the sports metaphor is, to me, the symptom that we are not looking at a vast realm of gender practice. For example, every woman I've talked to about the current presidential administration and its pageant of fashion and femininity has a pretty strong opinion, one way or the other, about what it means to her, whether it's the first lady's fashion style, how the White House was decorated for Christmas, how the presidential marriage appears or does not appear a certain way. We know there's tremendous information being communicated to us via these um, signs, but they are not being addressed as woven into other political messaging. Yet they are.
1: So you are a, a student of feminism and an activist as a feminist. What else do you see as the intersection of food and feminism?
2: It's such a hard question, and it's such a powerful question. I think one connection has to do with pleasure and our relationship to pleasure. And if feminism has, in some circles, gotten a bad name, for a long time there were people who said to me, "Well, I support, of course, women's rights, but I can't use the F word. I, I won't use that word." Why think, is that?
1: Why is it? why is feminism the F word?
2: Well, I think it's changing. Um, that was a period up until maybe the beginnings of the aughts, maybe a little bit later. For many people. And well-intentioned people, it was allied in their mind with abandoning of pleasure, uh, sexual pleasure, respect, and and love of man, a misunderstanding, really, of feminism as a kind of anhedonic uh, refusal of nature. And I think when we talk about controlling, overseeing, policing our food, There's a similar aversion that I have too. I I have to spend a lot of time thinking about what I eat because of an autoimmune condition that I have. But I also seek out pleasure and the natural joy of experiencing food and also the social joy of experiencing food. And I know how that gets disrupted when you think about it a lot in the same way that thinking a lot about feminism risks disrupting intimate pleasure, social pleasure, pleasure between people. And we have to learn how to embrace our pleasures while thinking hard about them. That's a life project. That's not an easy one.
1: I mean, it's also uh, creating consistency between values and pleasure, right? Yes. The idea that having values doesn't negate the possibility of pleasure. Not at all. And in fact, there's a greater sense of value derived and pleasure derived when those two things intersect. It's
2: so well put. And I agree. And I, I find myself always thinking about the concept of disavowal, you know, the psychoanalytic concept of knowing something to be true and simply refusing to acknowledge to yourself that it's true. And the first step in embracing a new kind of way of eating or a new kind of uh, relationship to fashion is first accepting those painful truths, you know, of worker conditions, animal conditions, uh, fashion provenance and destructing destructibility of the planet. If you can move past that and sort of open your eyes to it, and then find new pleasures, then I think that's an enlightened state indeed. I'm I'm working towards it
1: anyway. <laughs> <laughs> I think actually we're, it sounds like we're investigating the religious aspect of food and fashion, You're right. uh, because You're indeed, right. like this idea of the value system and deeper meanings and truths. Part of the evolution of food over the last decade has been the photography of food. And the politics of the photographs around food. Mm. And I'm wondering where that fits in the Mm. feminist, political consciousness, food on a plate, food that's been fetishized.
2: Well, there is a term food porn, right? Certainly is. Uh, And very often I've had the thought, listening to people talk about their latest mind-blowing meal at some fabulous international restaurant, that... wasn't really sure what we were talking about (laughs) and and there is a kind of it's not envy it's actually it's a a kind of vicarious joy and a vicarious pleasure that said there is I think a deflection often in the way especially middle-aged people indulge in talk and image making and image consuming of food that frankly I think is at least half about things that they're less comfortable talking about um, taking pleasure in, which is, is sexuality. It's just another outlet for the sensory pleasures of life,
1: and it allows them not to talk about sex. Yeah,
2: <laughs> it's far more far more acceptable socially to go into the depths of the deliciousness of your dessert somewhere.
1: With that, we're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we're going to talk more to my incredible guest, Rhonda Gerlick.
0: I'm Ethan Frisch, co-host of Y Food and co-founder of Burlap & Barrel, a public benefit corporation working directly with smallholder spice farmers around the world to source unique, beautiful spices for professional chefs and home cooks. We set our partner farmers up to export their own crops for the first time, and they get access to a whole new market here in the U.S., and we get access to spices that other companies can't source. We're honored to work with restaurants including Eleven Madison Park, Blue Hill, and Chez Panisse as well as thousands of home cooks across the country. Visit us at burlapandbarrel.com.
1: Welcome back. This is Dana Cowan, and you're listening to Speaking Broadly on Heritage Radio Network. Today, my guest is an expert in feminism, politics, fashion, a professor and a fellow, Rhonda Gerlich. And we're talking about politics and food. Every year when we hit the political trail and we're reading the meaning in french fries, I just think, wow, is that where the meaning of politics lies? When you look at these right now presidential candidates on the trail and think about the meaning in food, where where does that take you?
2: I think it has to take us today to Amy Klobuchar. I I wrote an outraged article months ago when Senator Klobuchar was reviled by the New York Times when it was recounted that she had eaten a salad with the tail end of a fork in a a desperate moment of hunger. Uh, The tail end of a comb. I'm sorry. (laughs) I'm sorry. That's right. She made a fork out of her comb and that was bruited about as proof of her
1: villainy this was one of my favorite pieces you've ever written. Perhaps it's because it's the intersection (laughs) of salad. (laughs) Salad, yes. And grooming uh, because of the the fork. But for people who don't know that story, when you say brooded about, first of all, it was, I believe, 11 years ago. I mean, it was a, a long time ago. So memorable that it became part of the presidential conversation. Do you want to just describe that story in a little more detail? Why? Right it became such a flashpoint, and what that says about personal politics um, and the politics of this country. Well, it was a staffer of Senator
2: Klobuchar who revealed to the press that in an attempt to paint her as a very difficult boss, somebody who is hell to work with, the anecdote was, was recounted that once, while rushing through an airport, she had a staff member, a man, buy her a salad, They got on the plane. She was hungry. The staffer forgot or lost the fork that accompanied the salad, and she was angry about that and still hungry. Kind of MacGyvered an implement out of a comb she had in her purse with a a rat tail comb, as we used to call it, which has a long pointed end. And she simply speared her salad greens with that comb and got the sustenance she needed. And then the, the little fill up to it was that she apparently asked that staff member to rinse her comb for her presumably because she was busy with briefing books and preparing important senatorial documents, but that was not in the story. And the New York Times had a huge article about it, which absolutely incensed me. Whatever part of that story is true, embellished, not true, was not the point to me. The point was that it was used to prove something about her, which women are always on the razor's edge of falling into, which is that they're bitches, that they are unreasonable. And the most talked about part was this comb fork, which, as you say, combines grooming, food, and there was a strong element of disgust conveyed. And to my mind, it was about reminding the world that women are creatures of the body in a way men are not. Men have combs. And if a man had done it, I think we can all agree, the article might have written. And brilliantly, he <laughs> repurposed his comb in a fit of hunger because the man's got to eat. You know, it, it was a way of stripping Senator Klobuchar and reminding us of how she has to arrange her hair. And she, there's a purse involved, which is a very feminine, Freudian uh, symbol. And um, she's spearing these lettuce leaves in a kind of inappropriately phallic way, we presume, with said fork. And not least, she had a man get her food which is a gender disruption. And then the man is asked to wash dishes, essentially. Again, gender disruption. So it was all about an aberrant woman, and it was all focused on this small moment, which I think we can all agree is a completely minor story, but food, washing dishes, power dynamics, and disgust over feminine bodily implements. It was
1: unbelievable how all this coalesced. Astonishing, really. We're talking there about consumption. And something Mm. you've written a lot about is women as consumable pleasure. When you've talked about the Jeffrey Epstein case, Mm. and I'm curious about food as consumable Mm -hmm. pleasure and where that (laughs) intersects with men and consumable pleasure.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And I can't help thinking about the ongoing Harvey Weinstein trial as well. Women are always compared to food. Right, there are infinite nicknames for women: cupcake, cream pie. Um, women are very close in the public imagination to delectables, and sometimes even feminine clothes look like we're dressed as cakes or candies. And the idea that you unwrap us and consume us is deep, very deep, in a way that just doesn't exist for men.
1: And. Um- Because of that, what does that do with men's relationship to women and to food?
2: Well, I think it's still true to a a large lamentable extent that women are considered attributes and prized possessions or fashionable collectibles to many men. And then the women provide the food consumables traditionally within that sphere. And then I think I can't help thinking, frankly, of the dresses that Harvey Weinstein's ex-wife would create and provide for his stars on the red carpet. Georgina Chapman is a good designer, and and Marquesa is her line, and this is not a swipe at her, but it is true that during his sort of reign of terror, maybe, in Hollywood, it was part of, of his stable of actresses requirement that they kind of do some brand advertising for his wife's company when they appeared on the red carpet. And her gowns tend to have gigantic bows on them. If you go back and look, these lavish gowns, which look like cakes, you know, there's this kind of wedding cakey kind of
1: confectionary.
2: confectionary gowns. Many of Chapman's gowns come with enormous satin bows that are tied around bosom or back. And the implication always to me when I see that is, unwrap me. I'm a delicious morsel, I'm a delectable parcel. And if you think back to one of Weinstein's most famous and really very fine films, Shakespeare in Love, the most famous scene in that movie that won Gwyneth Paltrow, her Oscar for that movie, was when Shakespeare unwinds her from a kind of binding around her naked body. And it's it's a sensual scene, it really is, and he unravels this wrapping that Gwyneth Paltrow is in, and she turns and turns until she's nude. It's very sexy, but it's also Christmas present unwrapping. And then when I saw the Marquesa gowns later that started appearing, I couldn't help making the connection between the way we see women, women's beauty, on screen in Hollywood as created for years by someone like Weinstein and and Miramax, and the way we dress them, even women dress themselves by designers who are women, we're still sort of packaging ourselves as delicious presents to unwrap.
1: What does it mean for men to be ravenous? Uh, <laughs> I don't know, you tell me. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it just seems that their appetites, they are inexhaustible. The appetites are inexhaustible.
2: I think that's a really fascinating thing you bring up because when we think of male appetites, we prize the unbounded, we prize the, uh, the ravenous, as you say, and that's considered a, a powerful masculine attribute but women's appetites are expected to be constrained self-policed fashion certainly doesn't encourage us to have unbounded appetites of any kind um in food, but also sexual appetite in a woman is still something that has to be very carefully modulated or risk making her seem inappropriate. And even when we read about women politicians expressing rage or anger, that's again a a sign of excess and unboundedness that we deplore and police, while when we see men raging publicly, we don't just excuse them, we often applaud them. And that's a bodily thing, you're right, it's about a, a bodily response to the world.
1: So you've mentioned a couple of times that you have a rather complex relationship with food because of an autoimmune disease. Yes. So tell me about what that autoimmune disease is and how it's affected the way that you eat and make choices.
2: Yeah. So I have celiac disease, which is not uncommon. About 3% of the European descended population has celiac disease, often undiagnosed. So I like doing a little bit of PR for it because a lot of people suffer without knowing. But I was diagnosed as a tiny child, so I've had it all my life and known I did.
1: That's interesting to me because so often celiacs it was hard to diagnose. I'm not I'm not sure mm-hmm. why, but well it is
2: hard to it's very hard for actual medical reasons to diagnose. But I had a sort of progressive pediatrician as a toddler who figured it out. So what celiac disease is is an autoimmune inability to digest wheat gluten which is in a shocking amount of our diet. I, I like to say sometimes it's as though I'm allergic to oxygen, and I go around saying, I'm sorry, no oxygen for me. No, no, no. Is there air in that? No, I can't have it. In in much of America, and, and frankly, the West. So since I was a very small child, I have had separate special Ronda food. But then for many years, I did not do that, and I had a normal diet, that normal in quotation marks, because the medical knowledge had not yet caught up with the fact that it is the genetic condition that doesn't go away. It's not a malady you cure. It's a condition you manage. But we didn't know that. And when symptoms abate, they told my parents, oh, she's well now. So from a very young age into my really, frankly, early 30s, I was experimenting with things, but I didn't fully absorb that I still had celiac disease. I really do. (laughs) And so I, I moved through the world now being extremely aware of All the ingredients in anything I eat, anywhere I go, including cross-contamination when particles of flour dust, like the kitchen of an Italian restaurant, for example, may prepare separate food for me. But if a chef has thrown a pizza crust dough up in the air, then I really shouldn't be eating anything in that kitchen. I consider it, honestly, Dana... A gift. Tell me why. It's a pain in the neck. It's a huge hindrance to daily life, no question. The other thing is I feel like I I bring my whole medical records and throw them on the dinner table and this happens. Like, what's wrong with Rhonda? Let's all discuss it. I don't need that. But it's a gift because it teaches me every day the delicate fabric we weave socially through food and how bringing the body and medical issues, organic, biological issues, to the fore In social settings, in commercial settings, unveils an entire backstage world of anthropological truth, sexual truth, social truth. And I feel like I get to have special x-ray goggles on it, and it teaches me a lot. It really does.
1: So can you give me a specific example (laughs) of when those goggles were on and what you saw?
2: Sure. Often, all the time, when I visit friends' homes, for example, I have to alert whoever's preparing meals uh, to my special needs. And absolutely almost everyone I know is extremely kind and accommodating. But it has definitely happened that people get upset. Not upset because I'm creating a burden, although maybe a little bit that too. But upset because it reminds people that what you eat affects your body immediately. And so I have had people, not close friends, but people think that I'm actually just trying to watch my figure and that I'm using a kind of faux medical excuse to get away with not having the pasta, the cake, the bread. And even when they don't think it's an excuse, I've had people say to me, well, no wonder you're slim because, you know, it's easy for you. You don't have the temptation. And it's peculiar to me that anyone would even put those two things together because I would really prefer to be able to have a big piece of cake and my greatest worry be I'd gain a pound. But I don't take it so much personally as I do as a sad sign that everyone is always on a a hair trigger to feel insecure about what their food choices are doing to them, how it might alter their body, how someone else's body is reacting. And if you, if you rock the boat, which has to do with disavowal again, where we pretend temporarily through a meal that the meal disappears as soon as you eat it. You don't see it. It's gone. It's not in you at all. So then we don't have to think about not just weight, but any of the myriad other health effects. The food is physically making our body. And so we have diabetes and there's obesity and there's you know carcinogens in our food food Provenance, as you and I know very well, is is excruciatingly important to physical and, and social health. If you remind people of it, and I just do with my own small issue, people sometimes freak out a little bit. And it reminds me that we're all kind of in an agreement to not mention that, which I think is actually bad politically.
1: And why is it bad politically?
2: Well, if we don't think about what our food does to our body, then we're also not thinking about what our food does to the planet, what the production of our food does to the workers who produce and farm our food, and we're not thinking about the animals who provide the meat, and we're not thinking about the pesticides that are giving people cancer, and we're, not, we're just not thinking. Punto. <laughs> yeah.
1: When you travel, is it easier when you travel? Harder when you travel? Do you want to just bring a pantry in your suitcase?
2: Yeah, option three. Um, <laughs> no, I love to travel. And of course, the, one of the greatest joys of travel is trying new foods and new cuisines. But it's also sadly true that as I get older, I'm less and less able to do that. So travel is like a kind of moon shoot or military expedition for me. And I have my regular luggage and then I have my non perishable foodstuffs that I bring for planes and for emergencies. And then I have my explanations that I learn in different languages, and then I have my interrogations of well-meaning and completely perplexed restaurant staff or friends in other
1: countries. So what, um, it's what's, not in easy. That, what's in that suitcase? Like, what, what do you bring as a non-perishable?
2: Um, kind bars and those egg white date bars and rice cakes and uh, gluten-free baked goods that Don't crumble or go bad too quickly. Is there
1: there an app that, like, is there any way in which technology's advancement has made traveling with celiacs easier?
2: Infinitely. And it's getting better all the time. My personal favorite app, which is Find Me Gluten Free, which is always on my phone and on any device I use. And it works in many countries, not all, but it works in, in a good number of countries and it uses your GPS function to let you know where there are at least a certain number of self-declared gluten-free providing markets and restaurants. Um, and there is a gluten sensor that I'm still on the fence about buying, and it's called the Nima, N-I-M-A. And it's like a little chemistry lab. It's a tiny, tiny device, but it's pretty advanced science. And you bring it with you anywhere you eat, and you can put morsels of food in it. And apparently after several minutes, it will beep and tell you with a color whether gluten is in it or not. And what I'm learning from people in the gluten-free community is that the NEMA unfortunately gives the lie to a lot of self-professed gluten-free places and options by revealing the hidden gluten in food that you think is safe, which of course would explain so often why
1: I get sick not realizing it when I've been as careful as possible. What's the emotion associated with this? Like You have to think so hard. Like What does that make you feel?
2: I can't deny it's stressful. At the same time, No one is more excited and happy than I am over a safe meal that's also a fine, really high-quality meal. You can ask my husband. I will do an actual jig. I get so joyful. There are a number of restaurants, for example, here in New York, but there's one that has recently opened, and I do not mind giving them a shout-out. They're all gluten-free, but that is not foregrounded because the cuisine is excellent. And what is that? Okay, it's called Santina and it's near the
1: Whitney downtown in the meatpacking district. Fascinating that that's a clean kitchen. Yes. It's a really fun space, actually. Is there anything to fear for someone from the celiac point of view in liquids? Like, mm-hmm. are cocktails a danger zone? Yes. yes, anything. Distilled spirits, almost all distilled spirits
2: contain gluten because they're grain distilled. And there is some debate in the expert community about this, but I don't touch cocktails that are made with anything but potato, vodka, or uh, there's a a small number of distilled spirits that are safe. And then I learned, to my dismay, Dana, that uh, some wine manufacturers, wine is, of course, gluten-free, but wine barrels can apparently be sealed with a paste made with flour, which, of course, sends all the flour down into the wine. I don't know how to determine which do this yeah i can't deny this causes me some concern very often i don't know what's happened to me and i think i've eaten perfectly i've had a perfect meal and maybe there's some hidden issue
1: at the end of each show i ask my guest to talk about something that is better than the hype and for you i imagine that has something to do with gluten-free what would you recommend listeners that's better than the hype
2: Well, I have a product that I uh, rely on when I travel. It is a metallic foil wrapper envelope that you can put toast in or untoasted bread and thereby create toast in any toaster uh, because something that's also a hindrance is I can't use communal, that is to say, gluten-using toasters and so forth. And when I travel, believe it or not, I carry these heat-insulated metallic foil wrappers with me so that I can use them in hotels, give them to a waiter, or sometimes if there's a breakfast buffet, you know, there's a toaster, and you can see all the crumbs around it. But I insert, not to be vulgar, but it's kind of a bread condom. <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> and, and it has a name, and
2: and then, Esco? That's it, Yes. And you can get it online, and they're very inexpensive, and you can reuse them many, many times. I do recommend them.
1: I had never heard of a bread condom before, <laughs> and I'm so pleased to know about it. Um, yes. I was it, also interested that it's a metallic bag that goes into something that heats. Yes. And that it doesn't explode, I thought was it an excellent... It doesn't
2: explode. I think it's like the suits astronauts are made of, I mean, that they wear. I, there's some. It's a very uh, high-tech, very advanced fiber.
1: Is there a woman uh, in the area of hospitality that you'd like to give a shout-out to? Yes, I am super
2: excited to give a shout-out to my good friend, the artist and restaurant developer, Vera Mercer, who is a citizen of the world but lives in Omaha and Paris. Vera Mercer is a photographer. She is an elder stateswoman of Omaha, Nebraska, and with her late husband Mark, is responsible for the resurgence of excellent haute cuisine in the Old Market area of Omaha. And she and her husband established several of the finest restaurants I have ever been to in my life in Omaha's Old Market, including the Boiler Room, Le Bouillon, La Buvette, and I think there might even be another one. But she and her husband, working with the great chef Paul Kulick, built up this area and made it a hub of fine food when it really had never been before. At the same time, Vera is a fine arts photographer whose work is very reminiscent of the 18th century uh, painter Chardin. If you know Chardin's work, Chardin painted still lifes with hunting trophies, dead birds, and lush, blooming flowers and vegetables. Vera takes photographs that are composed in a spirit reminiscent of that, and they are enormous. And they often hang in her restaurants, but they also hang in world museums and in hotels and around the world. Before she went into this line of photography, she was a famous portrait artist who worked with some of the greatest modernist artists. She took arresting, heart-stopping portraits of Samuel Beckett, of, of Tang Lee, of uh, dancers and artists. Um, she's a kind of zealot of modernist art. You can find her all over the world. And her, her artwork is about the aesthetics of not just food, but the stuff that makes food and the sort of the beautiful commingling of, frankly, death and consumption and luxury and art and the history of art.
1: Thank you so much for joining me on the show today, Rhonda. I love having you and talking about your worlds and the way that they intersect with food. Thank you, Amanda. Thank you, Nina. Thank you, Ava, for joining today silently. And for all of you listening, if you'd like to Follow Rhonda's work, you can find a lot of it at The Cut uh, online. And you guys know where to find me on Instagram at Speaking Broadly. So I hope you have a great week. I hope you enjoyed the show. If you did, go subscribe, rate, and review. And we'll be back again next week with a look at the intersection of food and culture. Have a great week. Speaking Broadly is powered by Simplecast.